off again. I shouldn't say that. I say that pretty much every time. Notice I changed my shirt. I have, I have a uh, pocket today. People are writing me. They're fascinated in, in my. Okay, they're not fascinated at all, but they do notice that I have more than one shirt now. That was the advantage of radio. I didn't have to change clothes for years, but, but I'm, whatever I'm on now, now I've got all this pressure that I hate. So, we are on April 24th, 2016, lecture discussion number 238 on the Book of Romans. And as you might have suspected, we remain mostly immobile at Acts 5. If you haven't read Acts 5, start. it's in the bulletin today. You can read it while I pretend to be warming up. We're not, we're, we're not static, however, at Acts 5. There are signs of dynamism. Uh, we have not yet fallen to zero degrees, Kelvin, but we're close. And I am aware of the difficulty, but hope is abounding. I think today we might make some real progress. Last Sunday, uh, after the service, after the lecture, about four or five of us, um, the, the two other Danas, I'm sorry, the two other Daniels and Dana and Super Dave or Sup Dave, whatever his name is, who remembers? Bill the Cow. We stood over here until my feet got tired for over an hour working our way through Acts 5. So the post game was in excess of the lecture. And I at least thought that all of those that were there participated in that process gained some significant ground, but I, I could be mistaken. But upon the assumption that such was so, I'm going to attempt to replicate the tract that we did after the lecture last week. I realize, though, that as usual, there was considerable meandering in direct approaches. So maintain the usual low expectations. <laughs> Excuse me. I have to bring other products to sell on the Internet. I'm thinking I have a Hitachi saw that I love, a 12-inch. Uh, it'll rotate uh, 50 degrees either direction. It's a slide compound saw. weighs about 100 pounds. But I figured I would sell it or at least promote it, because I actually use it every single day. I have two of them. I'm so afraid I wouldn't be able to buy another one that I bought one, and I leave it in the box, and I walk by and pet it as I go out my run. Anyway, point of it is, is that I am aware that product placement might be to my advantage. Anyway, the goal to which I absolutely cling is that it's always best if you discover the solution. Uh, if you assimilate it and make it yours, uh, if the answers to the obvious questions are your answers, that's what I'm trying to do mostly. Some questions, I believe, are evident. You can read it and the question, question, excuse me, just pretty much leap right off of the page, but some do not, some not. Then the questions themselves, if that becomes the case, if you're going through a passage and you can't come up with very many questions, uh, that makes the questions that you do find all the more prominent, all the more important. So knowing the questions, I can't say it enough, is of paramount importance when one is confronting the mysteries of Scripture. If you have a passage and you're not answering it very well, you're not understanding it, or if you have a simple explanation of it, then you're not asking very many questions, typically. The questions reveal, by the way, if you're... Uh, answers are valid. It's scrutiny. If, uh, for, imagine you're in a debate and you're presenting your position on a passage. Just anticipate the questions you're going to get from the people who have a contrary opinion. If you'll do that as a process uh, with yourself, you'll find all kinds of things that you never even thought might be there. They're always there. We just may not find them. Okay, where were we? Uh, we should ask, re-ask the first question of Acts 4.27 through Acts 5.16. Notice that I'm adding more verses. Taking you back to 4.27. Actually, you go back all the way to Acts 3 to solve Acts 5, the lame man, who I call Fred a lot when I do this lecture. So if I ask you, where's Fred? That's what I'm asking. Where did he go, this lame man that got healed by Peter? What do you think happened to the lame man that got healed by Peter? 
this guy has been essentially, he's been, how, how small he might have been. He's atrophied from birth for 40 years. He's carried to a spot. And now he's uh, able to move normally, if not extraordinarily. Where'd he go? So, when I was teaching high school, I I'd called him Fred. I, I just said, for those of you on the Internet that want to know how strange I am, I would say to the, con- or to the class, uh, where, where's Fred? And, and eventually they did a book called Where's Waldo? After, no, they didn't. They didn't. It should have been. I had the idea first. I'm that old. Note that I have added more verses to the pile. So uh, if you are not familiar with this passage, now's the time to start reading those as well. The first question, whenever you're going into Acts 5, in my opinion, just say, what's really going on here? Disregard what you have ever heard in any church. Most of the time, those passages are done in such an elementary manner that they're useless to you. So begin to say, what's really going on? You know something incredible is going on. i got two dead people here. Bang, bang. So ask, what's going on? Or if you prefer, why the sudden deaths of Ananias and Sapphira? Is Acts 5 about tithing, as it's normally portrayed, or is Acts 5 about Numbers 18.20? That is where Levites are prohibited from owning land. Acts 5 begins on a Levite selling land that he should have never owned. So is it about tithing? Or is it about Levites owning land in Israel? I should rephrase that a bit, I guess. How significant is Acts 4:36 through 37 to the events of Acts 5, 1 through 11? How significant is Barnabas, a Levite, bringing land that he has sold, bringing the proceeds of that land? How significant is that to the death of Ananias and Sapphira? Barnabas, a Levite, sold land and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. One of the other Daniels called me uh, yesterday, right? And I talked to him, and we maybe it wasn't him. Now I'm worried. See, it might have been Dana. But both of you called. So I, I'm not able to remember which one of you might have asked me this question or de- dealt with it with me. But uh, I eventually ultimately said to whoever it was, is the money filthy? In other words, was Barnabas' whole emphasis on getting rid of the land he's prohibited uh, to have? Did he care about the money at all? What did he sell it for? How fast did he sell it? I keep asking that. If he got $10 for it, was he happy just to get rid of it? Just to prove I sold it, and then he just gave the money to the needy, laid it at the feet of the apostles. So think about what motivated him to sell the land and did he care about the proceeds at all in the sense was that his primary emphasis. I've said previously, perhaps not with enough force, that I think I'm proposing to you that the entirety of Acts 4.27 through uh, Acts 5.16 or 5.11, if you, if you wish, all of that is dependent on the sold land being in Israel. If the land that Barnabas sells is not in Israel, then it does not fit in my view, because if, the, if he has, if he's a Levite with land in Israel, he's in violation of, of uh, Numbers 18:20, Deuteronomy 10:9. Levites were not to possess land in Israel, prohibited by God. And so, ask why not? God said no to Levites owning land. Own no land. No Levite was to own any of the promised land. See how I said that? Thus the next logical question. If a Levite violates Numbers 18.20, what is the consequence? Let me phrase it again. Is it evil for a Levite to own a section, a piece of, of a lot, if you will, in Israel? How bad of an act is this? Why did God say you can't do it? Now, we talked about 
he explains, your portion is me. I am your portion. So what have you done? Can you have both portions? You're a Levite. Can you have land and still have God as your portion? So isn't it obvious, I hope it is, that uh, Barnabas is rectifying what he believes the theological issue is with him owning land. And that is what uh, uh, Acts 5, 1 through 11, the death of uh, Ananias and Sapphira, are built on, if you will, predicated on. Another question that must be uh, considered, besides the wickedness of owning land if you're a Levite, why that's so. How many of the multitude in Acts 4.32? You see, I have a multitude here involved in this. How many? What's happening to my microphone? We'll wait for the technical skill of terrifathy uh, to repair whatever it is. It must be 19, I would guess. Is my microphone up too high? You know, somebody ordered me to put it up higher. Because that person, who will remain unidentified, but her initials are Terry. Could she have been incorrect? Okay. You think that it's the microphone's fault and not your fault? Okay. Okay. We will accept your premise. Maybe I'm yelling too much. Usually when I rant, we have problems. Can we keep that baby quiet? Whose grandson is that named after him anyway? Okay. (laughs) I'm kidding on the Internet. I really don't mind babies yelling at me. Ask anyone. God said no Levite could possess could own land in the promised land. That is not an accident. The logical question, is it wicked for a Levite to do so? Another question that has to be considered. In Acts 4.32, a multitude is, is uh, described. There was a multitude that witnessed something that happened in the room, or at least immediately outside of the room. There was a large group of people. How many How many Levites were in that multitude? And then how many of those Levites sold their land that they had? In other words, uh, was Barnabas the only Levite there? I don't think that that's defendable. I think there were many Levites. The Levites were interested in, is this the Messianic promise? And they are coming. And what Peter is doing is extraordinary back to Acts 3. Everyone heard about it. He did it in the temple, Solomon's porch after all. So Levites would have gravitated to this situation if for no other reason than to verify it. They would be forced to by the very fact that they're Levites. So was Barnabas then the first one to sell land? Where is he in the order? How many of them sold their land? If I have a hundred or two hundred, and Bill, uh, the cow, speculated it could be as many as a thousand. If I have that many selling land, why was Barnabas uh, lifted out? Is he the only one? Again, I don't think that's defensible. So where in the order is he? Is he last? I don't think he was last either. What, what differentiated Barnabas? Why was Barnabas the one who is identified in Scripture? And by the way, he has some prominence there. Let me ask it another way. Where in the order was Ananias? How many sold land? Think through the anatomy, the order of it all, the steps to it. Let me ask it this way. Was Ananias side by side with Barnabas? See where I'm headed? Did they come together? Barnabas walks up, puts his proceeds down. Ananias is next to him, puts his proceeds down. Side by side. Did they come together? That would be expected, wouldn't it? If Genesis 4 is the Old Testament complement to Acts 5. If Barnabas' offering has equivalency with Abel's offering. And if Ananias' offering is congruent to uh, Cain's offering. So do I have a repeat of Genesis 4 here? Barnabas and uh, 
Ananias side by side, one with an, each with a different offering, if you will, that correspond to Genesis 4. Anyway, I believe that is how we begin Acts 5. That's how we start to study it. Though I can see that there exists a contingent that objects to my methodology. I, I know that's shocking. We're always shocked by that. No, we're not. We're never. But what we'll do now is we're going to make what I call the Peter's List and see where that goes. And so that's going to start us at Acts 4.27. So if you've read the bulletin by now and you're ready, uh, all of that was just to stall, bring you back up to date a little bit. And now we'll start at Acts 4.27. We'll read four verses. So here we are. For truly against your holy child, I believe the Old Testament King James is correct. For truly against your holy child Jesus, not servant, child, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats. Oh, that's interesting, huh? And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Let me put that out. Peter is talking, he's asking for something. He wants God to consider the threats that he has, and he recognizes that he's doing something that he's never done before. He has this characteristic, boldness, as he describes it. Now we have to understand what he means by that. I have boldness, essentially, is what Peter is saying. I am under threat, and I have boldness. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy child, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So, we have a prayer, and the prayer results in the Holy Spirit filling the apostles, and the filling results in the speaking of the scriptures of God with boldness. So when somebody says, I have been filled with the Holy Spirit. What's the next appropriate question? Oh, what scripture are you going to now speak with boldness? That's not what they usually mean, though, is it? They mean something else. Well, it's obvious from this text that being filled with the Holy Spirit results in boldness of speaking the word of God. What does boldness mean? How is Peter describing himself? And by the way, the boldness is attached to Acts 4.12, where Peter and John were boldly connecting Christ to Old Testament prophecies and saying, uh, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So that is a result of the filling of the Holy Spirit and speaking with boldness. If you keep reading back there in uh, in Acts 4.12, you're going to find that the Pharisees were astonished by the knowledge of Scripture that these men had. So this boldness, they start speaking in a way they had never spoken before. And what they described and what they taught and what they said in the Old Testament about Christ, they connected Christ to every aspect you can imagine. It's like the road to Emmaus again, except this time the apostles are doing it without Christ giving it to them directly. It's coming from the Holy Spirit. And the Pharisees are astonished. It says they marveled. How did these uneducated, unlearned men have this kind of capability? Where did it come from? And also, uh, the Pharisees could not challenge, they couldn't refute the healing of the lame man, unable to move for 40 years from birth. Fred. How far away from Peter is Fred? Okay, the lame man. He's essentially an invalid for 40 years, an atrophied invalid for 40 years. And now he is totally functional. How functional is he? What's his 100-meter time? 
How far away from Peter does he go? The Pharisees see him with Peter back here in uh, verse 4, 13 through uh, uh, almost 18. They see him standing next to Peter. So what's the obvious question now? Was the lame man standing next to Peter when the offerings of Barnabas and Ananias happened? The Pharisees look at this and go, there is no way we can explain this, this man being healed. We can't explain this. We can't deny it. We can't do anything with it. Everybody has seen it. And by the way, that is where, where, if that man is with Peter here, is he also with Peter in that shaken room? Everybody knows him. He's been there at Solomon's porch for 40 years. He's an amazing sign. And the Pharisees are going, oh, man. And by the way, this is the Sanhedrin. This is the high priest himself is here. He had to contain this. Acts 4, 4 16 through 17 says that they, they got to stop. They're thinking about how do they stop it from spreading among the people. And so what, what do they do? They issue severe threats. They tell the apostles. They threaten the apostles with severe threats. Action. What do you suppose was the threat? How severe? If you don't stop doing this, we're going to yeah, kill them. We've got to stop these guys. It's getting out of control. It gets worse, doesn't it? Because pretty soon, what do I have? i got Levites doing what? Selling land. And so, Put all of that in your little hopper as we keep churning. The prayer of the apostles references the Sanhedrin's threat from Acts 4, or at, at Acts 4.29, asking for more signs and wonders. Peter says to God, I got threats hanging over me, and I know it, and I want what? I want more signs and wonders. He obviously had no concern about the threats. And now the room shakes. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God comes and I have the shaking. And it brings even more boldness. And So begin to define boldness. How this boldness is caused and how it is manifested. Next is the mass understanding that no one owns anything. The whole group says, we don't own anything. So now I'm going to say to you the Old Testament complement of, uh, of 432 of Acts is Genesis 14:19. Genesis 14:19 is where there is this extraordinary meaning of Jesus Christ as Melchizedek. Melchizedek is Jesus Christ. I've done that many, many times. That's the only explanation that will fit with Hebrews. He is Jesus Christ himself. The king of Sodom is there. There's this meeting between the king of Sodom, Melchizedek, and Abraham. Christ is Melchizedek. The king of Sodom is clearly Satan. And Abraham is also there. And the king of Sodom uh, says to Abraham, after God is declared to be the possessor's uh, or I'm sorry, God is uh, the God Most High is declared to be the possessor of all things, the possessor of heaven and earth, the owner of all things. In Acts 4:32, I have a whole bunch of people that that have this boldness in this shaking room, and all of them figure out quickly: we own nothing. What does that mean? We own nothing. Do you think you own something? If you do, you're wrong. What do you have? Do you think you have something? And now we're getting back to quantum physics. You don't really want to talk about physical reality, do you? You love your little thing, whatever it is. You think it's real. The subatomic, or I'm sorry, the spiritual implications of subatomic diameter is what we're talking about now. That's why I said a few weeks ago the original quantum physicists were in that room. They had an understanding of what the physical reality really was. 
God is declared to be the owner, the possessor of heavens and earth, the owner of all things. And so when you understand now that I have this meeting between Christ, Satan, and Abraham taking place in Genesis 14, uh, what, what Satan says to Abraham, Abraham has come back with people. He has rescued people. And he's also rescued their goods or their stuff. And Satan says to him, you go ahead and take all the stuff. And give me the people. Satan wants people. Ask why. What does he want to do with them? That will come up to play as we go on. But Abraham says, no, I don't want the stuff. It's almost the same language, if you will, of Acts 4, 32. The mass of people, the mass of the multitude, recognize that the physical reality, if you will, is meaningless to them. It is simply a tool. And they, the old adage, love people, use things, not the other way around, is being fully understood here in Acts 4. And I believe the understanding of this Genesis 14 meeting is, is likely uh, gotten by all of the people at Acts 4, 27 through 37, if not certain, uh, specifically, certainly in principle. Remember, they're speaking about Christ. They're finding him all over the Old Testament, and they're doing it incredibly in a way that I couldn't even imagine. Boldness means a, an understanding, a knowledge of the intricacies of the Bible and how it relates to Christ. And they're just going all over the place. I don't think we've ever had another, had any repeat of this by anyone ever. Anyway, after giving all of these evidence with great power, that tells you what boldness is. It's great power of understanding of Scripture. To relate the Scripture to Christ perfectly, with great power, flawlessly, if you will. That's not happening here today. In case you wanted to know. <laughs> I'm watching these films of myself. My posture is terrible. I, I look like a chicken. Stick my head way out. It's a wonder I don't fall over. We need more shots of me straight on. I think that's the best I can do. Notice I'm wearing black again today. I've watched way too many of the films. I'll stop here any minute now, but I can't. It's like, it's like looking at a car wreck. I can't stop myself from looking watching them now. <coughs> My point with that is I don't remember what I was talking about. Oh. I was talking about the fact that I am not producing what happened at Acts 4. I do not have great boldness. I do not have a flawless understanding of it. I don't have uh, the significant connections. But I have some, I hope. I'll find out. Do the best I can, right? He did the best he could. That's my gravestone. Anyway, after giving these incredible connections to Christ with great power. That's boldness. has great power. has connectivity to Christ. has this amazing revelation. After giving the evidences of all of that, and then, with also great power and boldness, they gave the truth of the resurrection of Christ. They were able to describe what happened to Christ in a way that it was overwhelming. The case was made. Great grace then is upon all of the multitude. And then now the Levites begin to sell their land holdings in Israel. They know what Numbers 18.20 is. Obviously it came up in the boldness at some place. Obviously, if it does, so does Melchizedek. And they start selling their land. Because, you see, the Levites own lots of land. Lots and lots and lots of land. Where did the Levites get all their lots and lots of land? God himself, Jesus Christ himself, calls the Pharisees devourers of widows' houses. Matthew twenty-three fourteen. How do you suppose the religious order of Israel got all the land? Honestly, they go out and invest, they flip houses, is that what they did? I'm just talking to King George about taking sledgehammers to uh, uh, plumbing walls on TV. It's just, I've made these comments before, I barely watch those shows. I watch them because they're amusing, not because they have any value. Tiny houses cracks me up. 
That just makes me laugh. Let's make fun of tiny houses for a while. First thing is that there's a compost toilet. That always You're going to live with a compost toilet in 2016, right? Do you know why they put them on trailers? Because then they're classified as mobile. If they're classified as mobile, then they don't, uh, they don't, uh, they're not applicable. They're not underneath the uh, purview of the Building Safety Division of Anchorage, Alaska. As if they were, they would tear them down. There's no egress windows. There's, there's nothing. The stairways are non-compliant. You've got maybe 12-12 stairway rise and run, which would kill me. I would fall to my death every day in a tiny house. I can't. But they pretend that this is a good idea. It is a great idea for small animals, I suspect. But nobody, you know, there's no insulation in them. You'd all freeze to death in Alaska. Notice they're not moving around now. Buy a fifth wheel. You get a generator, at least. You get electricity. You get sewage, containment of some kind, portability, at least. You can dump it. There's no sewage. There's no power supply, nothing to these things. You'd be dead in three days in Alaska. If you had an apple in there, the bear would tear the side of it off in ten seconds and eat the apple. And you. Blows my mind. <laughs> I'm ranting, apparently. Maybe I will not be asked to sell tiny houses. Probably not. So I have to go back to my product placement plan. Snow loads. You can't have two by four rafters. What are you crazy? <laughs> okay, I'll stop that now. Take the time to read Matthew twenty-one one through thirty-six. This is where Christ Himself begins to describe the Pharisees. Okay? Know who these are that are threatening the apostles. Uh, the uh, know what their threats are going to entail. Know what the apostles uh, were, were confronting. Know that these men, they're extremely wicked men that Christ talks about in Matthew 23, what they're capable of. And they have a lot of land. And note that this is an interesting thing because at the time that the, uh, the Acts 4 is going on, the Pharisees own a lot of land, if not all of it, not supposed to own any, and they also have what? They have the goods, they have the stuff, and they have the people. Both. And who are they? They are sons of Satan, the brood of vipers, the brood of the serpent. And they got it all. They were stopped at Genesis 14, but by Matthew 23, by Acts 4, they've got everything which becomes important as we reach the end of this section that we're in. Something caused Barnabas and other Levites, I believe there was quite a few of them, hundreds, to become obedient for the first time to Numbers 18.20. For the first time, like we have leprosy cured for the first time. That, by the way, was one of the ways the... uh, i got to stop saying, by the way, by the way. I notice I do that way too much. One of the ways the Pharisees got so much property and so much stuff is they used the leprosy system. They declared people unclean, banished them out of the city, and took their materials. When that leper died, they took the widow's stuff, if if she managed to maintain it. Devourers of widows is what they are. They're incredibly vile people, men, very destructive, as evil as you can get. So understand all of that. Now, for the first time, we have Levites converting and they are selling the property that they own. And what did they see? What did they feel? What did they hear that made them do that? They're completely going to the opposite direction of where they've been. Now, we can add the rest of Peter. And what I mean by that is we should assemble what now Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira because it becomes very critical, I believe, to compile it into a whole. What we do many times is we take parts of it, we see what he says to Ananias, and we see what he says to Sapphira, and we assume that they're distinct. I don't think that's what happened. Both of them had a trial. I believe the evidence, the totality of the evidence was presented to both. 
what, what's done in Scripture is, is divided into two portions, if you will. But both of them got all of the evidence, all of the, if you, uh, all of the mitigators, I'm sorry, no, the aggravators that were legally valuable were presented to each of them, the entire case, for lack of a better way to describe it. So we're going to add that now. And, and that approach, I think, is valid because that is how you approach Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Let me put that on there. Genesis 3 has a relationship to Acts 5, too, as well, because they have a man and a woman on trial. In Genesis 3, however, the outcome is opposite. That's a key piece of information, that the uh, trial in Genesis 3 is opposite of the trial in Acts 5. So I'm going to make a quick list here and see if I can get you to look at what we're doing. I guess I should read these portions and then we'll make a put them on the board. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? That's an important question. Get to that in a minute. To lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back of the price of the land for excuse me for yourself. A very misunderstood verse. We'll get to that in a minute. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Fascinating. Who owns everything? How much do you own? Here's your first tithing lesson. Why does he want you to tithe? Does he think, I need better clothing? Probably he does. Some kind of facial restructuring. We could put a jar up for me here. Donate to pastor's plastic surgery fund. What a great look, huh? Can't believe that either. That's another insane thing that I've watched in my lifetime. Do you own anything? When you recognize that you own nothing, that changes you. I don't want your money. You know that. I don't care. I'm not worried about it. I can still run a worm drive saw. I will survive. I think they wrote a song about me with Charlie Daniels or something. Never mind. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. So let me put that on the board. Satan has filled your heart. Satan has filled your heart. Why? Why has he done it? To lie. And you're not just lying. You're lying to God, the Holy Spirit. So I have, I have Satan and I have a lie. That makes perfect sense to me. They'd be side by side. To keep back. You're going to keep back. So that becomes really, really important here in a minute. For yourself. So there's a benefit to Ananias. What's the benefit? While it remained, uh, you owned it. So you owned it. After it sold, you controlled it. What's the obvious question there? If I told you, hey, I sold my car, well, why are you still driving your car then? Did I really sell it? I still own it, I still have it, and I still control it. What is this? Why have you conceived this thing? EFG. Why have you conceived this thing. Okay, I'll help you really fast in case I run out of time. This thing has to be related to the lie. You have not lied to men. Where am I? G-H-I somewhere in here. You have not lied to men, but to God. 
And I have the repeat of the lie, and obviously that's going to go back there. Okay, now we'll move on. Now, it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her. So that tells you that what happened. She said, "Uh uh-oh, where's Ananias? So Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. So he starts out by saying, he answers, and he says, tell me this is wrong, but I never mind. I know I'm missing letters. Tell me. That, by the way, reminds me of Joshua and Achan. Did you sell? Is the land sold? Was it sold for so much? And she said, yes. What is she saying yes to? Two things, right? That she sold the land for so much. I believe that she got the same thing. And Ananias got. And Ananias got the same thing that she got. I think you could put them together and repeat them. Then he asks, how is it that you two have agreed? To test the spirit. Let me put it another way. To test God. Behold. That's very important. I can't make a U. But you see that behold. Feet, door. And finally they will carry you out. The ones that carried out your husband are going to carry you out. So what's the obvious question there? Who are the ones that carried out the husband? And obviously that's the young men. So now the question becomes, did she know the young men? Did they know her? question again becomes after that, uh, what were they there to do Originally, Okay, let's sift through this now. The words of Peter in the position of the prosecutor. He is in a prosecutorial position, if you will. And as the interrogator of those two who had conceived this thing, immediately it should be obvious at the center of this is the satanic lie. It starts with a satanic lie. It repeats the satanic lie. Down here it even says it again, to test God. So the satanic lie has something to do with the testing of God. You've conceived this thing. Test God. Lie, lie. The whole passage is marinated in the satanic lie. And note again the agreement between Ananias and Sapphira to the this thing. It's a test. A testing of God. Thus the obvious question. I notice now as I'm getting older, my enlarged tongue is affecting my speech. You might think I'm tired today, why I'm diverting all the time. Probably I am. Don't sit in the front row without some kind of rain protection is all I'm trying to say now. I'm watching myself. It's disgusting. Should never have agreed to these, this technology. It's affecting my confidence. It's a test, a testing of God. The obvious question is what? What exactly, what attribute of God is Satan, Ananias, Sapphira putting to the test? It's a satanic test. It's a satanic lie. Which one is it? Somehow Ananias is going to benefit. It's for himself. He sees a benefit for himself. For yourself. (laughs) 
What's he going to get out of it? Do you think he wants money? He's keeping the money because he needs money. He's a Levite. In all likelihood, what's he want? He sees a benefit. What is his benefit? So a satanic lie that is, is a test of God. The lie is not to men, but to God. And somehow Ananias is going to benefit. It should be clear that Ananias never sold the land. He was still in violation of Numbers 18.20. Ananias never had any intention to sell his land. He and Sapphire only wished to make a counterfeit offering. It's a counterfeit offering. It is a fake offering. It's placed adjacent to Barnabas' genuine offering. I submit. Remember, Peter was under a severe threat. I erased that, didn't I? Peter is under a tremendous threat, and Peter asks them, did you sell the land? Sapphira answers, yes. Peter also asks, did you sell the land for so much? Sapphira answers, yes. But we know the land was never sold and not for any price. Look again at these two questions from Peter. Why has Satan... Let me repeat it. Word for word. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to God? It fills your heart is a phrase that comes from a root word that means control. Why has Satan controlled you? How is it that you have agreed together? Let me say that. How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? What's the obvious question there? How many is together? Your choices are two, just Ananias and Sapphira. What's your other choice? The young men. And what's your other choice? High priest in the Sanhedrin. Remember the severe threat, threat, Sanhedrin. There's two ends in there. I'll get it right sometime. What else? How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Those, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. Why has Satan controlled you? How is it that you have agreed together to test God? Why did Satan move Ananias to lie? Why did Satan do this? See, you're always focused on Ananias and Sapphira. Stop. Ask, why is Satan doing this? What's his plan? What's his motive? He has moved Ananias to lie. How is this lie a test of God? And to repeat, what of God is being specifically attacked? God is very clear. Deuteronomy 6.16, didn't he? You shall not test the Lord your God. Christ says Deuteronomy 6.16, where? Directly to Satan at Matthew 4.7. You shall not test me, is what Christ says. He the application of Deuteronomy 6.16 is, is to Christ himself, as it should be. It is evil to test God. Ask why. Have you ever tested God? Raise your hand. No, put your hand down. Okay, all of you have. All of us have. We throw out little tests. God, if you will teach me to play the trumpet, I'll preach better. So far, no luck for anybody. But we do. He says no. What does testing God mean? If I was testing you, I'm coming up to you and I say, Bonnie, I want you to, I'm, I'm going to check out and see if you're honest with me. Just got 50 questions. What am I saying to Bonnie? I'm saying she's not honest, aren't I? By the very fact that I present the test to her, the inference is unmistakable. 
You need to come up here and take a test to find out if, uh, if you stole this. It is evil to test God. Start to think that through. In Matthew 4, Satan is accusing God. It is wicked to accuse God. It is a lie to accuse God. So what is the constant lie? Pay attention to people that constantly say that other people are lying. That's a, that is a pathology. And it's also a simple tactical trick. What is the constant lie, the lie that Satan always repeats? What is this thing? Whatever this thing is, how does God respond? He immediately intervenes, doesn't he? The deaths of Ananias and Sapphira are instant. Never disregard the instantaneous deaths of these two people. And likewise, never discount the the key back part, the keep back. Something was kept back. I have two offerings. Barnabas comes up. What's in his offering? All the money that he got from the sale of land that he should have never owned and he knew it. Or never thought that he owned. And side by side is Ananias. And he pretended to sell land, but he still controlled it. Still owned it in a sense, somehow. And he kept back part of the proceeds, right? One of them is genuine. One of them is a, con- is a uh, counterfeit. So, can I get rid of the list? I will. What did I start out with? I said compare this event with a couple of things. But the first thing was Genesis 4. Genesis 4, I have two offerings side by side. One of them is what? Blood. The other one is without blood. One of them has the blood omitted, withheld, missing, kept back. Something was removed from Ananias' offering to God. It was kept back compared to Cain. And by this intentional preclusion, rejection on this part, if you will, a lie, a test, an accusation is presented, unconcealed, dead straight at God himself, face to face. Why do you test the Spirit of God? That's the question, is it not? We could reread Israel. We don't have time, but we could. What they said to God, what their test was, Numbers 14, 3, Exodus 16, 3 through 4. If you can go right there, that's, that's far enough. You don't really have to go past that. Well, you can take Numbers 14, 3, too. Those of you on the Internet, take a look at those. You'll find out what their test was. What was their test? Israel continually accused God of bringing them into the wilderness for what purpose? To kill them. You are bringing us into the wilderness to kill us. That was their default test. Whenever something went wrong, that is what they they brought before God. What are they saying to God? And God responds to this. He says, this is evil. This is wicked, evil, Numbers 14, 27. So consider that for a moment. If you accuse God of bringing you into the desert under a pretense of worship with the actual intention of murdering you, what have you said about the character of God? That is the definition of testing God. I would submit, uh, what would be the contemporary, if you will, equivalent to that? Today, I'm going to tell you that it is... uh, Modern monism, which says that God may have created man. They'll grant that. But man does not have true existence. They will say only a temporal state. They claim God has made us then only to experience a brief condition and then to be extinguished, annihilated in a premeditated act of supreme cruelty. That's evolutionary monism, if they accept God as the creator. And evolution as the process. 
So, what is the polar opposite of that? What is the evidence that this thing that I just uh, presented to you is a lie? Well, the opposite of that is 433 of Acts, where God says, I have resurrected myself, and I have given you myself in grace. The opposite, that God is evil and has just created us to annihilate us in the desert, all of us. That all this life is, is a temporal state with no hope, and you're going to perish and end. You'll be dirt. That is a declaration that God is profoundly wicked. And the opposite of that is God saying, no, I've resurrected myself and I have given myself to you freely. Christ resurrects himself. He's God. Jesus Christ willfully, freely gives himself for what end? For his glory. It exposes his character. What's our benefit? Our benefit is that we must live. Resurrection of Christ and the grace of Christ both prove that God is always truth, always just, and always good. Truth begets justice. Justice begets goodness. Goodness begets justice. Justice begets truth. They all point to each other. Christ being the resurrected God is the defining point that God is good. If Christ does not resurrect himself, if God does not resurrect God, then God is not good. And the inverse would apply, wouldn't it? If Christ is not the resurrected God, salvation is not by grace and God is not good. God is good because God resurrected himself. God is good because uh, of great grace. And if Christ is not resurrected, what does Paul say through the Holy Spirit? We are, of all men, the most pitiable. Satan said to Eve, you will not surely die. Inside of that is God lies. Coupled to this, Isaiah 14, 14, where Satan says, I will be like God. You will not surely die then. God is a liar then. Must spring from, I will be like God. Does that make sense? One is the objective. The other is the means by which the objective is affected. The ambition and the instrumentation, if you prefer. The ambition is, I will be like God. The instrumentation is, you will not surely die, and God is a liar. To see the connectivity, uh, then all that is required is to define the desire, right? I will be like God. In what way will he be like God? Well, it is not, is it not obvious that Satan seeks a couple of things that we can look at first. He wants humanity to do what to humanity? He wants humanity to kill humanity. He also wants for God to do what to humanity? To kill humanity. Revelation 19, 19 through 21. The latter makes God weep. The former also makes God weep, right? How is that like God? I will be like God. Is it, some, it is somehow integrated in Isaiah 14, 14. I will propose that Satan understands control at a level we do not understand. He understands this attitude of possession, owning people, controlling people. I said last week that money attracts the maniacal. Pathological people seek control. Ask this, what delights Satan? Life or death? He's animated by death. Does Satan betray all those who follow him? Do all who follow Satan, are they ultimately betrayed? The answer to that is maybe. Because the Pharisees, I believe, certainly know that Satan delights over death, even their own deaths. The natural progression then is the intractable choosing of evil on the basis that God is the author of evil. That happened in Matthew 12, right? Christ was accused of healing on the basis that he was really evil. So the question then becomes, why would God evilly heal the sick? So, 
hopefully next week we can tie up the loose ends and get back to the man gathering wood on the Sabbath. Don't count on it. Probably not going to happen. I still have more work to do, but I hope that you now at least recognize the connection between the testing that Israel does of God and the testing that Ananias and Sapphira do of God. and Start putting together what really happened at X5.